You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 455 of this podcast. Today is August 17th, 2022, and today we are going to talk about the scandal of the evangelical mind by Mark A. Knoll. I just finished up yesterday. It was very, very interesting. You should all know, by the way, that my newborn son is wearing a onesie today that says big idea guy. That is a total coincidence as far as I'm concerned. As far as I know, I didn't put it on him, but my wife did. I don't know if she was being funny or if uh, it's providential. Either way, it does amuse me and I figured it would amuse you as well. But before we get into the review of Mark A. Knowles, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, I want to follow up a little bit on our recent episode about Martin Lloyd-Jones and his views on politics, particularly regarding a few things I said, just thinking out loud and asking some questions that were, I think, honest questions, genuine questions, whether they were dumb questions, sincerely dumb questions, uh, is another matter. But I asked the question whether Martin Lloyd-Jones had a similar view towards Christians being in denominations, as he seems to have with regards to Christians being in political parties or getting excited about political parties. How did he view Christians getting excited about being in denominations? And a quote was sent to me by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, who is learned and well-read and very helpful to me in giving me lots of things to think about, lots of very insightful questions, lots of great book suggestions, and also lots of great articles to read. But he sent me one from feedingonchrist.org regarding Martin Lloyd-Jones on ecumenism. And I'm just going to read this quote for you. And I think it will help to answer the question I had, which maybe some of you also would ask as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what is the Christian church? That is the question. You cannot discuss church unity unless you are clear in your mind as to what the church is. Now here is the great divide. The ecumenical people put fellowship before doctrine. We are evangelicals. We put doctrine before fellowship, end quote. And I would agree with that. I very much agree with that. We put doctrine before fellowship. We are not Unitarians. And I think so also. I do not believe that Christians can join just any old political party can be found in all political parties. If a certain political party is for offering children to Molech, I cannot join that political party. If a certain political party is for daily, weekly reenactments of the sins that got Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, and then celebrating the same, and then trying to destroy anyone who tells them, no, that's not good, and you should really get that looked at by the Lord Almighty, and uh, repent, turn away from your sins, be saved. I cannot join the political party that throws parades for the sins that got Sodom and Gomorrah wiped off the map. So a couple of things, just real briefly, real, real briefly. Again, I have the utmost respect for Martin Lloyd-Jones. From what I have heard and what I have read thus far, I may disagree with him on his view of politics, but that does not mean that I want nothing more to do with his thoughts on other things or his preaching, his teaching of the scriptures. He seems like a very well-read, very intentional 
very thoughtful, very deliberate, very methodical thinker, Christian leader, preacher, teacher of the past hundred years, and we do well to study him. That does not mean all or nothing, that we either agree with everything that he says or else nothing. But neither, even in saying that much, do I think we need to just keep it to ourselves if there are some points on which we would differ from Martin Lloyd-Jones or anyone for that matter. C.S. Lewis is another Brit from about the same time period, which I have enjoyed writings by and materials from and quotes of as much as anyone who is a Christian can enjoy C.S. Lewis. But I respectfully disagree with C.S. Lewis on some important points. For instance, what to do with the Psalms, for instance. I think he was quite mistaken about the Psalms. G.K. Chesterton, I loved the everlasting man. G.K. Chesterton was a Roman Catholic. I cannot agree with his Roman Catholicism. That said, The Everlasting Man was a very fine book, and G.K. Chesterton is a very important voice in the intellectual discussions within Christendom in the 20th century. Am I saying that he can be a Roman Catholic and also love Jesus and also be a part of the capital C Church? Yes, I am. I think someone can be a Christian and also belong to denominations or traditions which I find highly objectionable and which I could not in good conscience be a part of. But I don't think I have to keep it to myself if I differ with G.K. Chesterton on some important points or C.S. Lewis on some important points or Martin Lloyd-Jones on some important points. And particularly where any of the three might wade into politics and say things which would not, in my view, be correct or helpful or beneficial or well-informed. I may even disagree passionately. And by passionately, I don't mean to give myself over to emotion, to where I'm controlled by my emotions, but that is to say, with all of my emotions along for the ride, I would disagree strenuously that Christians should stay out of politics, that they should be disinterested with politics, that they can be neutral, or that all paths lead to God with regards to things which are put in the political sphere and yet have been spoken to very clearly as matters of wickedness and righteousness in God's word. We live in a bit of a different time, though. That said, we live in a bit of a different of a different time than our ancestors even three generations ago did in the UK, in the US. They had their own attendant challenges and problems, but we have, I think, all the more obvious ones, which we will not be held guiltless by our maker if we gloss over, in my view. And so I can't, I can't gloss over the major differences between the Republican Party and the Democrat Party Unless, of course, the Republican Party decides to be just like the Democrat Party. And in that case, I will say, yes, Christians can abstain from all political parties if these are the choices that we've got. But so long as we have a representative form of government, I happen to agree and actually would credit Edmund Burke with having changed my mind about political parties. I have long said that I write myself down as an independent I do not register as a Republican. I register as an independent. I vote as a Republican because I don't see Democrats as being worth a darn when it comes to moral compasses. I see them being very much for offering our children to Moloch and celebrating the sins that got Sodom and Gomorrah pounded with fire and brimstone. So I cannot ever see myself voting for a Democrat. But then if there happened to be a Democrat who was for a national ban on abortion and also was for making homosexuality and transgenderism things to be embarrassed about again instead of celebrated in parades, then I might reconsider, particularly if the Republican alternative was a reprobate. But Enough about politics in this episode. 
I want to move on to Mark A. Knoll's book, and yet I have a couple of other items I need to tell you about briefly. And they do relate. Actually, they do relate. I just don't have time to give them the full treatment in this episode. I'm hoping to treat them more fully in coming episodes. One is an article from the Gospel Coalition by a certain Justin Taylor. A blog post of his from October 18th, 2016 was sent to me by J.P. Chavez, Two Houses Down. In sum, Martin Lloyd-Jones gave a talk at an ecumenical evangelical conference in the 1960s in which he called for Christians to leave their compromised denominations and churches and band together instead of continuing on in the sin of schism. John Stott happened to be the master of ceremonies, the much younger man at, I believe, 45 years old at the time. John Stott, emceeing this conference, got up to close out the program after Martin Lloyd-Jones had spoken and took him to task in front of all gathered and basically said that the scriptures and history and good taste are not on your side respectable sir, and then later apologized, but by then the damage had been done and they never were quite on the same page or simpatico again. I think that also, along with the quote I just read for you, is very important to note. And I'm going to borrow a certain biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones for three chapters in particular, which come highly recommended by Mr. Chavez as pertaining to the 1960s and this general time period in which he was saying some of the things that I quoted in my recent episode about Martin Lloyd-Jones on politics and also in the same time period in which he had this falling out with John Stott. I want to read those chapters and understand better what was going on in the broader context so that I have some idea what to make of what Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying and why he was saying it. What was he really trying to get at? And if he was mistaken, what caused that? I think it's good to learn from the mistakes of others whenever possible. For that matter, I share some of my mistakes with you for the very same reason. I hope you learn from my mistakes and don't just go on repeating them. But where Martin Lloyd-Jones might not be mistaken, and I might be mistaken in understanding him, I might be misunderstanding him, I want to clear that up as well. So I'm looking forward to reading those three chapters of said biography. It is important to note, as for the past century of church history, that there was in that day when John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones had their falling out, and there still is in our day, a strong push in some circles to perhaps even reunite all the major branches of Christianity. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant. And that push is very much in my mind here the past several weeks as I've been turning my attention to what is ecumenism and what do we make of it and where does it come from in the modern era and is it of a piece with globalism? Is it of a piece with the internationalists and this effort at getting a one world government essentially through the United Nations and before that the League of Nations? It turns out that it is, in fact, a development which was inspired by the League of Nations. The ecumenical movement in our day is a thing which was inspired by the League of Nations. And so also, I think I readily agree with the quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, that as evangelicals, we put doctrine before fellowship. That is absolutely right. We do not want to unite with people who are heretics or apostates or with whom we cannot, in good faith, share platforms because some of the teaching would be gross error. Now, if we can quote selectively on some things and say, okay, I agree with this, and I'll let God sort you out and sort me out and sort us all out, I'll quote you here where I agree with you, I think that's fine, whether we're talking folks who claim to be Christians or don't claim any Christian faith whatsoever. But, alas, I digress. Another piece that was sent to me here yesterday by J.P. Chavez. And again, he deserves a great deal of credit for supplying me with so much food for thought and so much material to podcast about. A certain blog post at Crossway 
from Jen Oshman from August 1st of this year, just two weeks and some change ago. She wrote a blog post titled, When Marriage and Motherhood Become Idols. And I want to tell you all about it, and I want to comment on it very much so. A quick note, since idols is right there in the title, we won't spend too much time on this one for now. We'll come back to it in a future episode, and I'd like to actually devote an entire episode to this in particular, because I think it's very important. And I am writing a book about marriage after all, and I plan to write a book about having children after that. It has become a pet peeve of mine to hear idolatry claimed too early and often for too much of what is objected to in the American church. We need to work harder to make our points and arguments from the scriptures instead of calling everything we don't like idolatry. I think this might just be the American evangelical form of everything I don't like is literally Hitler or literally the Nazis. If we just say that such and such a position or statement or way of relating or movement is idolatrous, we don't have to do any more work to look in the scriptures to see whether these things are so. We don't have to come up with a book, chapter, verse to make our point. We can just pin everything on idolatry. And because the scriptures are very clear about idolatry and everybody knows it, we don't have to make any more arguments from there. I think that is very dangerous. And I think it's a slippery slope that we are not on (laughs) the crest of. We are most of the way down the hill from. We slipped down that slope a long time ago, actually, as Mark A. Knoll makes clear in his excellent book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which we turn to now. The summary from Goodreads.com reads as follows. The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. End quote. So begins this award-winning intellectual history and critique of the evangelical movement by one of evangelicalism's most respected historians. Unsparing in his judgment, Mark Knoll asks why the largest single group of religious Americans who enjoy increasing wealth, status, and political influence have contributed so little to rigorous intellectual scholarship in North America. In nourishing believers in the simple truths of the gospel, why have evangelicals failed at sustaining a serious intellectual life and abandoned the universities, the arts, and other realms of high culture? Noel is probing and forthright in his analysis of how the situation came about, but he doesn't end there. Challenging the evangelical community, he sets out to find within evangelicalism itself, resources for turning the situation around. In case you're wondering who Mark A. Knoll is, the author summary from goodreads.com says that Mark A. Knoll, born 1946, is a McEnany professor of history at the University of Notre Dame, is a progressive evangelical Christian scholar. In 2005, Noel was named by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. Noel is a prolific author, and many of his books have earned considerable acclaim within the academic community. The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, a book about the anti-intellectual tendencies within the American evangelical movement, was featured in a cover story in the popular American literary and cultural magazine, Atlantic Monthly. He was awarded a National Humanities Medal in the Oval Office by George W. Bush in 2006. Now, if you were listening closely, and you might not have been, but I'll repeat it in case you weren't, never fear. This author summary from goodreads.com describes Mark A. Knoll as a progressive evangelical Christian scholar. 
He does not seem to me to have a high view, <laughs> to put it mildly, of fundamentalists or, for instance, creationists. He has a very low view of creationists in particular and fundamentalists in particular. Also, let me just tell you from the jump, one thing I did not like about the scandal of the evangelical mind is that it was just a touch elitist, and I don't like that. If you've ever seen Back to the Future, you know how Marty McFly has a trigger anytime someone calls him chicken. It's like something flips in his brain and he has to do the thing that they just challenged him to do, dared him to do, or else he'll be a chicken. I don't have that trigger, but I have a similar kind of trigger when someone is talking down to me. I hate when people talk down to me, uh, unless I laugh it off, right? If it's silly, it's like, <laughs> it's funny. You can't be serious. You are not talking down to me. You cannot talk down to me. Uh, I don't get frustrated or anything. I just laugh. I laugh long and loud and hard. And so if you've ever tried talking down to me at all, even accidentally, and I laughed long and loud and clear, I guess now you know what's up. But when people I do have some respect and admiration for talk down to me, boy, howdy, does that get under my skin in a jiffy? That's not necessarily a brag. It's not a boast. It's just a statement of fact. I do not like being talked down to. And I don't particularly love that Mark A. Knoll here is a bit of an elitist and that he has some great things to say, which I admire, and that he is just a touch condescending as he says some other things that I don't agree with. And yet I don't think he would give me the time of day to argue my case regarding. I could be wrong about that. I don't know. I don't know Mark A. Knoll. I've read now two of his books and was very impressed with the Civil War as a theological crisis. I was fairly impressed with the scandal of the evangelical mind. I gave it four out of five stars, but nevertheless, and maybe all the more so, I do not like being condescended to by Mark A. Knoll or anyone for that matter. But to give you just a little bit more of background on Mark Knoll from Wikipedia, this says again that he is an American historian specializing in the history of Christianity in the United States and that he holds the position of research professor of history at Regent College, having previously been Francis A. McEnany, professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. Now, some of you Americans out there will say it's Notre Dame, and I will say, no, it isn't. You're saying it wrong. I'm not. Noel is a reformed evangelical Christian and in 2005 was named by time one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. Born on July 18th, 1946, Noel is a graduate of Wheaton College, Illinois. He got his bachelor's degree in English. Also, he got his master's at the University of Iowa. He got also another master's in church history and theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he got his PhD in the history of Christianity from Vanderbilt. Before coming to Notre Dame, he was on the faculty at Wheaton College, Illinois, for 27 years, where he taught in the departments of history and theology as McManus, Professor of Christian Thought. That's a great title. I want that title. While at Wheaton, Knoll also co-founded with Nathan Hatch and directed the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals, ESI, which ran from 1982 until 2014. Knoll is a prolific author, and many of his books have earned considerable acclaim within the academic community, in particular, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, a book about anti-intellectual tendencies within the American Evangelical movement was widely covered in both religious and secular publications. He was awarded a National Humanities Medal in the Oval Office, 
by President Bush in 2006, Noel, along with other historians such as George Marsden, Nathan O'Hatch, David Bebbington, has greatly contributed to the world's understanding of evangelical convictions and attitudes past and present. He has caused many scholars and laypeople to realize more deeply the complications inherent in the question, is America a Christian nation? In 1994, he co-signed Evangelicals and Catholics Together, an ecumenical document that expressed the need for greater cooperation between evangelical and Catholic leaders in the United States. From 2006 to 2016, Noel was a faculty member in Department of History at Notre Dame. He replaced the retiring George Marsden as Notre Dame's Francis A. McEnany Professor of History. Noel stated that the move to Notre Dame allowed him to concentrate on fewer subjects than his duties at Wheaton had allowed. Author of many books, very widely acclaimed, very smart guy, very informative historian. I don't like that he is ecumenical. I don't like that he is progressive. I don't like that he scoffs at creationism. I don't care for those things about him. Nevertheless, here again, we have someone who I think we can benefit from, and yet I put some asterisks beside certain things that he says because I have question marks about the conclusions he's drawn on presuppositional things, which will affect the way he interprets, not necessarily the facts themselves, but how the facts fit together and what conclusions to draw from the facts. That said, some notable quotes from the scandal of the evangelical mind in particular, since that is our key focus here. First off, he says, to put it most simply, the evangelical ethos is activistic, populist, pragmatic, and utilitarian. It allows little space for broader or deeper intellectual effort because it is dominated by the urgencies of the moment, end quote. All right, that's quite a statement. Next quote, the point of Christian scholarship is not recognition by standards established in the wider culture. The point is to praise God with the mind. Such efforts will lead to the kind of intellectual integrity that sometimes receives recognition, but for the Christian, that recognition is only a fairly inconsequential byproduct. The real point is valuing what God has made, believing that the creation is as good as he said it was, and exploring the fullest dimensions of what it meant for the Son of God to become flesh and dwell among us. Ultimately, intellectual work of this sort is its own reward because it is focused on the only one whose recognition is important, one before whom all hearts are open. The Gospel of John, next quote, tells us that the word who was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of glorious grace and truth, was also the word through whom all things, all phenomena in nature, all capacities for fruitful interaction, all the kinds of beauty were made. To honor that word as he deserves to be honored, evangelicals must know both Christ and what he has made. This I agree with. And even the previous quote about recognition, I agree with but I don't know how much I trust Mark A. Knoll and his recognition by the wider world, given that he has ceded certain important ground as I see it and seems to have been given recognition in part because he denigrated the intellects of those who are conservatives, those who are fundamentalists, those who are creationists, and that was like throwing red meat. That was like chumming the water for sharks, in some sense, in academia, in the mainstream intelligentsia and elite circles, to throw conservative Christians under the bus after a fashion in those ways, in those areas, is a quick way to get pats on the back from folks who agree on few other things like they agree that they don't like conservative Christians. I think 
I have some question marks there. As much as I like the work he's done, I have some grave doubts about certain conclusions he's drawn. And there's a part of me that would love a version of the scandal of the evangelical mind, which I could take a razor blade to all of the references to creationism before reading. That is how strongly I feel about his comments regarding creationism. As for fundamentalists, so-called, I think that there is a certain elitism and a certain condescension, which is fairly insufferable and may in some cases be mistaken for anti-intellectualism and also may be in other cases the cause of what is called anti-intellectualism. And that seems to be lost on Mark Knoll. And I think that's unfortunate. I think that people being talked down to like they're idiots because they disagree with your more progressive interpretation of certain passages, particularly in Genesis, you should not be surprised if they don't take a liking to that. I'm just saying. Next quote, fundamentalism, dispensational premillennialism, the higher life movement, and Pentecostalism were all evangelical strategies of survival in response to the religious crises of the late 19th century. In different ways, each preserved something essential of the Christian faith, but together they were a disaster for the life of the mind. And here I would ask, why? Right? Why? And I think one of the missing ingredients for Mark Knoll's book is that he doesn't really address the ways in which the positivists in secular academia have provoked and driven away conservative Christians. He seems to put all of the burden on the conservative Christians for having left the academy, and he seems to assume that their having left the academy is the same thing as having given up on the life of the mind. That is why I say he's a bit of an elitist, and I don't like it, and I don't care for it, and I don't agree that that is the best way to make sense of all of the evidence. There are certainly some who are anti-intellectuals because they're intellectually lazy, and I know this for a fact because even where I might agree with some of their conclusions, I listen to the way they argue their case, and even where I want to agree with their conclusions, I have to object to the way they arrive at their conclusions or ask others to arrive at their conclusions. And I know from experience that in trying to do this, very often what you will find is you get abuse from those sorts of people who just can't believe that you would agree with their conclusion and disagree with their methods or disagree with the way that they reasoned to those conclusions. There is definitely a bit of an anti-intellectual strain among conservative Christians all too often. And yet, I think a large part of the reason for that has to do with progressive intellectuals who see themselves as the only intellectuals and then box out anybody who doesn't agree with all of their conclusions and doesn't flatter them. It becomes a kind of good old boys club, which has as much or more to do with who you know and who you keep from offending or upsetting by contradicting, and not as much to do with how rigorous your studies and argumentation are. If you arrived at different conclusions than those which they have long ago decided are foregone, you're out, and then they call you an anti-intellectual just like they call those who are actually anti-intellectual. And that is not careful. That is not decent. And I would have liked this book better to have dealt more with the onus on the academy for having driven out conservative evangelical Christians. He faults, for instance, some conservative evangelical fundamentalist Christians 
when they went and started their own universities without any experience, without any qualification. What gives you the right to go and start your own Christian university? You don't know what you're doing. This is just still more intellectual ignorance, laziness, anti-intellectualism, and it's a mockery. How dare you? But it's important to ask the question of which came first, the chicken or the egg? It's very important to ask. Another quote, one more, just one more for right now. Most evangelicals also acknowledge that in the scriptures, God stands revealed plainly as the author of nature, as the sustainer of human institutions, family, work, and government, and as the source of harmony, creativity, and beauty. Yet it has been precisely these Bible believers par excellence who have neglected sober analysis of nature, human society, and the arts, end quote. And this is too true. And I say this as someone trying to pursue after a fashion the life of the mind, trying to train up my children to pursue the life of the mind, to study, to make a lifelong endeavor of cultivating their minds, being well-read, practicing good communication, being able to articulate the reason for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect, taking every thought captive, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. When you leave off talking about the gospel, narrowly defined, all too often among conservative evangelical Christians in America, you will get a rebuke. Sometimes it will be direct and blunt. Other times it will be much more subtle. And that is not wise. That is not good stewardship. That is not proper. It is disgraceful. It is shameful. Study to show yourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You need to work at it. You need to apply yourself to it. You need to study. You need to be intentional about it. You need to be deliberate about it. It will not just happen by accident. Furthermore, to say that we should study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed is to say that there are other kinds of workmen besides approved workmen. Imagine someone just showing up on a construction site with some tools and some safety equipment, jumping in and doing work without anyone giving them permission or orders or instruction, and then at the end of the day, getting all indignant when they don't get paid for it or they don't get thanked for it. Approved workmen. Do you have permission to be here from God? Do you have a mandate from God to be here? Are you called to this? Are you acting as though you are called to this? Well, you're supposed to. For that matter, too, you're supposed to prepare yourself, cultivate your mind in such a way that you will not need to be embarrassed, and neither will the people around you need to be embarrassed or ashamed. That is not some newfangled progressive thing. The progressives have co-opted it and hijacked it, but conservatives need to wise up. And I mean that. We need to wise up. It is not wise to give study over to the godless and to progressives, to liberal theologians, liberal Christians. It is not wise. Moving on. Doug Wilson, pastor out of Moscow, Idaho, gave this book four out of five stars, as I did. I did not give this book four out of five stars because I saw that Doug Wilson had, but I gave it four out of five. And then I was scrolling through trying to grab the book summary and the author's summary from Goodreads. And I saw his review and I saw four out of five and I thought, ah, good. Okay, cool. We're on the same page. His brief comment, great with some lousy bits. And yes, just so. I can't say only so much and no more, but yes, that's quite right. Great book with some really lousy bits, especially those bits about creationism. And I think actually a fair number of the bits about fundamentalism. J. Gresham Mockin was 
considered a fundamentalist. That is to say, he was a theological conservative, and his Christianity and Liberalism is a book we all need to be reading. For one, as an example of how to be well-versed and how to form clear, cogent, proper arguments and articulate them. But also, too, what's at stake from 100 years ago? What's at stake was known well in advance. He was called a fundamentalist. It does not mean that he was wrong or that he was eroding the life of the mind for Christians. I think some of the pearl clutching from progressives about conservative Christians and their positions on some things is actually just elitism and loving friendship with the world after a fashion and not wanting to give up on being put in Time Magazine's top 25. Just saying. Now, for any of you wondering, what is progressive Christianity? Surely you, Garrett, would not read a progressive Christian being a conservative Christian as you are. And to that I would say, yes, I would. Yes, a progressive Christian is something of an opposite to a conservative Christian, not that these things are always neat and tidy. Conservatives, worth their salt, will be for progress after a fashion. If you are conserving traditions that are worth their salt, you are conserving what is, in your view as a conservative, most likely to lead to continued human flourishing. And that includes innovation, yes, but careful innovation without jettisoning tradition. If you are a progressive It does not necessarily mean that you are not for conserving anything, especially if you follow a certain progressive tradition. You are definitely for conserving the progressive tradition of always looking forward and trying to innovate and build and develop and all of that. So there is some overlap, but there's a question of carts and horses here. But according to Wikipedia... Progressive Christianity represents a postmodern theological approach. Off to a great start, by the way. (laughs) Doing really good. Keep going. (laughs) This says it is not necessarily synonymous with progressive politics. It developed out of the liberal Christianity of the modern era which was rooted in the Enlightenment's thinking. Progressive Christianity is a post-liberal movement within Christianity that seeks to reform the faith via the insights of postmodernism and a reclaiming of the truth beyond the verifiable historicity and factuality of the passages in the Bible by affirming the truths within the stories that may not have actually happened. And what did I tell you? This is of a piece with Mark Knowles' problems with creationism and with believing that when Genesis tells us about a global flood, that there was actually a global flood. This is of a piece. And this is a large part of why he was on Time Magazine's top 25 most evangelical, influential people Progressive Christianity, as described by its adherents, Wikipedia continues, is characterized by a willingness to question tradition, acceptance of human diversity, a strong emphasis on social justice and care for the poor and the oppressed, and environmental stewardship of the earth. Progressive Christians have a deep belief in the centrality of the instruction to love one another, John fifteen seventeen within the teachings of Jesus Christ. This leads to a focus on promoting values such as compassion, justice, mercy, and tolerance, often through political activism. Though prominent, the movement is by no means the only significant movement of progressive thought among Christians. Progressive Christianity draws influence from multiple theological streams, including evangelicalism, liberal Christianity, neo-orthodoxy, pragmatism, postmodernism, 
progressive reconstructionism and liberation theology. The concerns of feminism are also a major influence on the movement as expressed in feminist and womanist theologies. That's a new one. Womanist theology is a methodological approach to theology which centers the experience and perspectives of black women, particularly African-American women. The first generation of womanists, theologians, and ethicists began writing in the mid to late 1980s, just so you know. Although progressive Christianity and liberal Christianity are often used synonymously, Wikipedia tells me the two movements are distinct despite much overlap. So here I would defer to J. Gresham Machen, and I agree with J. Gresham Machen. I think that to call conservative Christians, those who hold to conservative theology, those who are opposed to liberal theology and progressive Christianity, anti-intellectual as a matter of fact, and to have also in many cases removed them from academia and the public square, and then to say, aha, see, they've given up. That's why we removed them, is a little disingenuous, to put it mildly. Some key takeaways, nevertheless, from Mark Knoll in The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. One, he confirms my suspicion that German pietism has had a few hundred years at this point to emphasize the importance of feelings in the Christian life in a way that has gradually displaced the former preeminence which cultivating the life of the Christian mind enjoyed in the church. I, to be clear, like Ben Shapiro's tagline, which the Daily Wire has embraced wholeheartedly, the facts don't care about your feelings. But your feelings, I would add, ought to care about the facts. That is, to my way of thinking, a major distinction of my brand of conservative Christianity. My feelings ought to care about the facts, but my feelings are not first and foremost what define me. What do I believe is true? And what are my works? What are my fruits? My feelings need to follow after, but I'm not going to lead with my feelings, and you shouldn't either. German pietism has left the church in America especially vulnerable to a lot of nonsense, ignorance, and unreasonableness because we are trying to preserve a certain sentiment. And in so doing, in being so committed to a certain sentiment and regarding that sentiment, whichever sentiment it happens to be, I think various traditions have latched on to different feelings and they think because they're latching on to different feelings, different states of mind, that therefore makes them better than other traditions, which latch on to different states of mind, different emotional preoccupations. It's not so. It's not so. The democratization of American Christianity by Nathan O'Hatch is referenced helpfully. That's another work which I've read, which I recommend often. I think it gives a lot of important history, a perspective on the history of American Christianity, and yet at the same time, it has a certain bias which creeps in here and there in conclusions drawn. I think the facts presented are well presented, and we can be conversant with the facts and yet restrain ourselves from agreeing with some of the conclusions drawn, whether we're talking Mark A. Knoll or Nathan O'Hatch. That would be my counsel. That would be my advice if you're engaging with these men's work. Knoll, in this work in particular, besides quoting the democratization of American Christianity and some other work by Nathan O'Hatch, comes across as a bit fussy and whiny at some points in a way that I think is unbecoming, and he's not selling it. I don't know that he's really trying to sell it. It feels a little bit like he is approaching the advice that Richard Dawkins gave to an audience of his when he was asked what to do when someone tells you they believe in God or that they're a Christian. 
Richard Dawkins said, mock them. And I think to some extent, Mark A. Knoll is expressing a variation on that. When conservative Christians tell you that they believe this, that, or the other thing, mock them. Call them anti-intellectuals. I think that is not good. And I think that is not helpful. And I think that is not entirely above board and honest. Sometimes there are genuine anti-intellectuals in conservative circles. Other times, this is a bit of a cheap trick to avoid having to answer the challenges and the counterpoints and the arguments being made by people who you presuppositionally and fundamentally disagree with. Speaking of fundamentalism, there are fundamentals to progressive Christianity, which we do well to examine and consider carefully. And yet Mark Knoll does not seem quite as interested in examining those as he is in throwing stones at fundamentalists. Where Noel complains early and often about creationism, I cannot agree with him. And actually, I am very offended because I think he's being rude and presumptuous. And as I already said, condescending. And that is a pet peeve of mine. I may not have my bachelor's degree or my master's degree or my PhD, but I have taken great pains to be well-read and to be thoughtful and to be conversant. And I do not like being talked down to as if that counts for nothing, just because I disagree with the presuppositions of progressive Christianity or progressive ideology in our day. I wonder genuinely what a similar work written today, as opposed to 20 years ago, would look like. Would Mark Knoll be saying the same thing today that he is saying when he wrote The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind? 27 years have passed. 1995 was the publication date. That's a lot of time in which liberal theology, progressive Christianity, liberal politics have developed into something I think downright monstrous intolerant, and not just content to force Christians out of the academy, but insistent on forcing out anyone who does not abide by woke orthodoxy. That also is a rabid kind of anti-intellectualism. It is not only among conservatives that anti-intellectualism is found. Just ask any conservative speaker who has wanted to come and speak at a college campus, who has been welcomed and invited to speak at a college campus in the United States of America, ask their security detail or law enforcement who were called to save them from being ripped to pieces by angry mobs. It is not just fundamentalists who are anti-intellectuals. This is not a uniquely conservative Christian problem, just to be very clear. And yet, I will say this, where I appreciate most of what Noel has to say, and I really do, I really do appreciate most of what Noel has to say. I think he is a commendable historian for the most part. I think the Civil War as a theological crisis is fairly even-handed and informative and very interesting, especially when you're dealing in quotes, direct quotes of figures on both sides, North and South, prior to, during, and after the Civil War. Noel did a great service in putting together that book, which I have read also, which I think is a better book than this, and yet he doesn't quite necessarily recognize the way in which his own preferred views in The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind are a continuation of a lot of themes that he talks about in The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. What I appreciate most in what Noel has to say, is his call to restoring a long, rich tradition in Christianity of scholarship, intellectual rigor, study of the natural world, and engagement in every sphere of science to the glory of God. I appreciate his making those calls clear. I don't appreciate his insinuation that conservatives de facto are excluded, and yet we will turn right around and 
criticize conservative Christians when they go somewhere else to do that very thing. And it doesn't look like what it looks like in your liberal academy, your progressive academy. I think a contrast, which is helpful here, is Rod Dreher's Live Not By Lies, for instance, where we are talking about the life of the mind for Christians and the need for preserving, continuing on the project of building human civilization, fulfilling the creation mandate. Rod Dreher's Live Not By Lies is a great contrast to the scandal of the evangelical mind. I love that Rod Dreher recommends more Christian schooling, more Christian private schooling, more Christian homeschooling, and more Christian continuing adult education. When I am reading these books, as I am working a nine to five or seven to seven blue collar job out in the middle of a cornfield, putting together instruments to monitor pressures for true line pressure on an oil and gas site in North Colorado. When I'm listening to these books and talking about them with my neighbor two houses down, who's a truck driver and I think farm manager in training and a very fine fellow, I do not see Mark Knoll giving much credence to efforts by Christian men, Christian husbands and fathers, and lay people and lay leaders like J.P. Chavez and myself, or Micah Hirschberger and myself, and I could list a dozen other men in short order, I don't think that Mark Knoll gives enough credit to Christian lay people like us who are reading these books and engaging with them in a deep and meaningful way, and yet, if I weren't podcasting about it, you wouldn't know it. And there's a part of me that wants to feel offended, and yet there's a larger part of me that just laughs because I think this is ignorant. And I think it's all the funnier, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I think it's all the funnier because someone so wise in their own eyes could be so ignorant. And yet, This is precisely where I like Rod Dreher's book much better, where he talks about communism and Christians living under communism. And he talks about the dark ages and he talks about us potentially entering into a new dark ages. And I don't know whether that's the case. I don't think we need to engage in a whole bunch of apocalyptic fatalism where we're just sure that all these prophecies are being fulfilled from the end times in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel and other places. And so we might as well just sell sell all our possessions and wait on the rooftop because Jesus is coming back any minute now. If he does, if our Lord and Savior is back in five minutes, great. Also, if he's back in 5,000 years, may he find us or our descendants busy doing good works and letting our light so shine before all men that they might glorify our Father in heaven. That's my position. Mark Knoll's prescription, I think, is far too narrow-minded. And I think it's far too self-congratulating. And I think it's far too whiny. And in some measure, it reminds me of another book that I like very much and yet have to take some exception to, begrudgingly. Not that I want to take exception to it, but I I have to. I can't help but take some exception to it because I think it's got a blind spot and a significant one, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, assumes too much about the limitations of new media where the cultivation of critical thinking and being well-informed and having an intellect and civic engagement are concerned. He is, I think, on the whole, by and large, correct. And I think he gives a helpful history in that book as well. And yet there is a kind of whininess that stands between his work and some kind of a broader call to action and a wider acceptance that would be beneficial to us and our posterity and our countrymen and our country and our churches. I think Mark Knoll, unfortunately, though a decade 
down the road from Neil Postman engages in very similar kind of self-promoting whininess in the scandal of the evangelical mind. He's celebrated so much as a progressive Christian, and yet he seems to be a bit bitter that conservative Christians who he is deriding do not celebrate him quite so much as Time Magazine does. And yet, I would ask, what were you expecting? If you are attacking conservative Christianity in favor of something which we're not liberal theology strictly speaking, so overlaps that it's hard sometimes to tell the difference. And we need people with very advanced degrees, and a lot of them, to explain the difference. What is exactly the difference between liberal theology and progressive Christianity? Please do tell. I actually think that in large measure, not entirely, but in large measure, a better modern-day equivalent for concerns about strange fire in our day compared with Pentecostalism, as John MacArthur would say, is actually liberal theology. I think liberal theology represents a much truer form of strange fire being offered on an altar compared with Pentecostalism. Not to say that Pentecostalism has no worrisome aspects. It certainly does. But liberal theology takes a great many liberties with the biblical text, with Orthodox Christian faith, which I think have caused most of the trouble that we have in our country today, where conservative Christians, those who hold to conservative theology, have erred in being anti-intellectuals. It's exactly in those places where they should have been intellectually rigorous so that they could counter the false teaching of liberal theologians. And yet, this ecumenism is right there to meet us as well. And I don't think we're checkmated, but I do think we've been held in check for far too long. Because on the one hand, you don't develop the life of the mind. And then on the other, when you do develop the life of the mind, you find criticism from all sides because you're being divisive. Unity is always on a certain basis, because the conclusions are foregone by those who beat everyone else to the punch as they see it. I would beg to differ, and I would contend that the life of the mind is not reserved for those who attend universities and institutions which have been taken over and subverted by German higher criticism, by critical race theory, by social justice and wokeism, by liberal theology, do read J. Gresham Mockin's Christianity and Liberalism. By all means, read Mark Knoll. By all means, read Nathan Hatch. But do read J. Gresham Mockin. By all means, read George Marston, who Mark Knoll took over for. George Marston's Twilight of the American Enlightenment is very interesting stuff. I really enjoyed that book. I found it fascinating. Mark Knowles' The Civil War is a Theological Crisis is very fascinating. Nathan Hatch's The Democratization of American Christianity is very fascinating. And yet, I think some of these characters have stopped just short of that point in connecting the dots, which would have caused the applause to die off in those directions where they were getting applause. And to some extent, I think their diatribe against conservative Christians is a kind of scapegoating for the fact that in certain key areas, they have sold themselves to the progressives and to the liberals, because where else were they going to go? It's mercenary, if that's what it was, and they knew better. But regardless, whether it was genuine or mercenary, we need to know better. And that's the point. That's the big idea. I think if we learn how to do that, then whoever would condescend and talk down to us, we can laugh. So in short, I gave this one four out of five stars. I thought it was informative on many points. I was offended and I found it to be rude and obnoxious and pretentious 
and elitist and condescending and short-sighted and self-serving on some other points, maybe even insufferably so, still worth a read. I would like to very much read Carl R. Truman's The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind next. I think that could be valuable to see what he has to say. I should hope that I will like him every bit as much as I have liked him to date in reading Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, but we will see. For now, that's all the time I've got. I gotta run. It's a Wednesday night. I'm back on for systems integration work for seven days starting tomorrow, so I should go, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. Listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also, check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.